I'm noticing how I have just a sense of knowing you a bit more than I did when we began the retreat together. And it's so much gentler to speak into a room when we've heard some of your stories, when we've heard your voices, and um, as we come to understand some of the nature of your experience on this retreat, it just feels more personal. And tonight I'd like to speak about where the path leads. I'd like to speak about some of the depth of where the path leads. Because some moments in meditation and some moments on retreat, it's like the reality can feel like it gets very much narrowed to our own personal psychology or the pain in the shoulder or just, um, you know, as supportive and freeing as this space is, you're not in control of some things that you might normally be in control of within the context of your daily lives. And, you know, mindfulness has become so popularized in this country, and it's a good thing. You know, it's, it's a good thing that, mind, that there's these huge sections in the bookstores now on mindfulness. And what we're practicing here on this retreat is mindfulness within a context of very deep understanding, within a context of a liberative understanding. It's great if happiness and calm are some of what happens as a result of this practice. We're practicing for happiness and calm, but we're really practicing for freedom. Individually, collectively, we're really practicing in the direction of the unbinding of that which keeps us separate. And as I'm speaking tonight about different conditions that give rise to other conditions in the direction of freedom, I really invite you to not hear it as something out there, you know, not to hear the talk tonight as something that's like a Buddhist teaching in a book somewhere, but to take what I'm sharing with you through the lens of how you might know this in your own experience, because no matter how um, difficult things may be for you on this retreat or in your daily life, you are experiencing tastes of freedom and flavors of freedom. And we're hearing it in the practice discussions. We see it in you. They say that retreat practice is like better than Botox for your faces. Like it could come in like this, you know? And then there's this radiance from the inside out as we begin to settle and open to the radiance of our deepest hearts. So I'm talking, there's, there's a map in a teaching called Dependent Origination, which I'm not teaching on tonight. That's a, that's a teaching about how suffer, the genesis of suffering, how suffering comes to be. It's basically um, a map of, of how the presence of confusion and delusion flowers into full-on stress and tension and misunderstanding. That's one side of the map. And then there's another side of the map. How do we enter through the gateway, the doorway of suffering, and move in the direction of freedom? You know, not just what stands between us and freedom, but what actually happens as the heart lets go over time. 
what actually happens. You know, when the mind doesn't know its own nature, it goes out. It's seeking, seeking, moving, moving. And as the mind begins to know its own nature, it rests in itself. There's not so much going out. Things get more quiet, more available, more still. And our perception begins to open to something that's not so bound up. Our perception begins to open to something that has the flavor of freedom. We become less attached to these fleeting moments. We spend so much of our lives bound up chasing after. And we come to know a peacefulness that comes when we're not chasing ever-changing moments in the same way. And, and I'm really speaking about the process of how it is to open to a deeper ground. Have you had moments these last days where you felt the presence of a deeper ground? Because it's in you. It's in, it's in every being in this room. It's in all sentient beings. It's not just our deeper ground. It is the deeper ground of being. Lives inside me, lives inside you, lives inside sentient life. And so the, te- the name of what I'm talking about, sometimes it's called transcendent, dependent, arising. <laughs> I'm going to call it liberative, dependent, arising. And this is the journey of letting go that's not a white-knuckling, I'm going to let go, I'm going to muscle it into letting go. But the kind of letting go that happens through the long process of conscious awareness, because it's really um, the wisdom that lets go. It's not the self that lets go. It's the panya, the insight, the understanding. So this teaching in the, in the Pali Canon is taught only two times by the Buddha, both at a place called Savati in Jetta's Grove. And it's probably an observation as to what the Buddha observed over time in his um, students. And in my own experience, this uh, map rings true. And as I'm talking about suffering, it's easy to have this become a very casual word, suffering. The Buddhists always talk about suffering. I'm talking not so much about systemic suffering. I'm talking not so much about the surplus suffering that is seemingly unrelenting in our world right now. I'm talking about the suffering of the second arrow. I'm talking about the suffering that we create for ourselves because we don't understand things fully. And I invite you to, you know, just like be personal with what I'm talking about. How's the suffering manifesting for you? Is it grief and loss? Is it a diagnosis? 
Is it outrage? Is it disorientation and confusion? Is it anxiety and fear? Or just a generalized sense of despair? Perhaps there's a personal dimension to a systemic suffering, like racialized hatred and injustice. Like mourning, you know, loss of species and extinction. All the isms. So in this teaching, dukkha, suffering, all that I just named and more that you know and I know. And suffering's interesting because we come to this path to suffer less. And I remember on my first retreat, I'm like, I'm suffering like more than I ever thought I could. I'm out of here. Why would I keep doing this? I came here to not suffer. I'm suffering. I wasn't actually suffering more than usual. I was seeing it. And so sometimes on the journey of, 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 of um, understanding the nature of suffering that leads to letting go, there's the experience of suffering more because you see it, touch it. Like, oh, this has just been under the surface. Woof. So suffering is a condition for the arising of trust. The Pali word is sada. It means to put one's heart upon. If life's going along and everything's great, there tends to not be the same impetus to look more deeply. Suffering is a condition that... um, has the capacity to bring forth goodness and deepen us if we let it, let it. You know, it's like a question I ask, like how much suffering does it take for humanity to wake up to the truth of the harm and the devastation you know, that we created? So the trust comes from, you haven't left the retreat yet, you're still here. Somewhere in yourself, you're trusting enough to be here and to engage the practice. And the kind of trust I'm talking about is not so much a cognitive decision. It's more like a magnetic draw that pulls us. There's a feeling sometimes that the Dharma is like a a gravitational force field that that pulls us in over time. It's It's like a vortex. We begin to trust the Dhamma. And I like to think of this quality of sada. Is it's like, where do you lay your head down? Do you build an altar to that which is small and limited? Do you worship your own self-images? Is your allegiance to what is familiar? Do you lay your head down at the feet of identities that are not ennobling to you? Or do you lay your heads down to the altar of a deeper heart? To the sacred? 
you offer yourselves to a larger and wider mystery that can only be known in the present moment. Bell hooks. Contrary to what we may have been taught to think, unnecessary and unchosen suffering wounds us, but need not scar us for life. It does mark us. What we allow the mark of our suffering to become is in our own hands. That's what we're doing here. That's why we talk about the noble truths. Oh, nobly born. Buddha addressed the disciples again and again. Oh, nobly born. It's like, oh, what would the world be like if each child came into this world? being mirrored, oh, nobly born. It's so beautiful. This is a poem by Rosemary Watola Traumer called For When People Ask. I think she's saying, for when people ask, how are you? For when people ask. I'll share more about the story of this poem after the poem. I want a word that means okay and not okay. A word that means devastated and stunned with joy. I want the word that says I feel it all, all at once. The heart is not like a songbird singing only one note at a time, but more like a Tuvan throat singer, able to sing both a drone and simultaneously two or three harmonics high above it, a sound the Tuvans say that gives the impression of wind swirling among rocks. The heart understands the swirl, how the churning of opposite feelings weaves through us like an insistent breeze, leads us wordlessly deeper into ourselves, blesses us with paradox so that we might walk more openly into this world so rife with devastation, this world so ripe with joy. You ever feel like that? My friend said that the first word of her son was no K. <laughs> like, no, okay, no K. And so I've been using this poem a lot this summer and fall. It's a poem that just really speaks to uh, me and communities that I work with. And um, a few months ago, a friend um, who was at one of my retreats um, introduced me to the poet who lives just two hours away from me. She lives outside the mountains of Telluride with her family. And we've been getting to know each other. And she's a phenomenal being, deep, deep wise heart. And she told me the story behind that poem. And she said that the poem was written in response to um, wanting a way to answer people, asking her how she was after the death of her teenage son. And so she wrote the poem after he died. 
And then uh, six weeks after she wrote the poem, they buried Finn's body in the cemetery outside of Telluride. And she, she was telling me about um, what happened for her at the precise moment that she put her hands into the dirt. I've, I don't know if you've ever been part of a burial. I've been part of several. There's like nothing like that moment, the utter finality of it. You know, so she, she's, um, she said that, that um, as, she, as she was just you know, pulling it into the open grave, a primal and earthly, earthy and unworldly sound began to swirl through the canyon, and she realized it was throat singing after she wrote the poem. And as it turns out, there's a music festival. I go to this festival, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, um, and because of the canyon's acoustics, you can hear what's happening in the stage in town where she was burying her son's, her son's body, and um, the monks were singing there that morning. The Tibetan monks, have you ever seen the monks with their incredible instruments? So they were, they were sharing their music and their prayers. She didn't know that on the stage, you know, to the Festivarians. And it went through the whole canyon. And, um, and it was really the music that she'd written about six weeks beforehand. She said when, when she was burying her son, it was sunny and lightly raining. It was unbearably sad and astonishingly beautiful. She said, if I hadn't lived that moment, I wouldn't have believed it happened. This life is inside of a great paradox that you know, can, can beckon us toward deepened understanding and can also really um, shake up the conceptual mind. It doesn't exactly give us one place to land, but it does beckon us to really be here and participate in reality, if we want to understand reality. So, suffering is a supporting condition for the arising of trust. Trust is a supporting condition for the arising of joy. And this is a kind of joy, I won't spend long on it, it's a kind of joy where we know that things are a bit more workable in the practice. Um, this is when there's a quality of embodied presence and we settle into the body and we don't have to think about things quite as much and it soothes out the nervous system. This type of joy called pamoja is a supportive condition for the arising of piti. Translate the word PT as rapture. It was really talking about this kind of raising up of the energy with a real interest in what's happening. The practice, because we're interested, like the practice, again, is, is rolling along in a certain way because we're actually really interested. This can actually be a little uncomfortable. There can be a lot of energy sometimes. And PT is the supporting condition for the arising of calm, pasadi. And calm is another level of settling out. When there's calm and the hindrances come into the mind, it's like they land on a feather bed versus hard concrete. The sense of, oh, aversion is here. Okay, not so much resistance. 
Diversion can be here and so can calm. It's gentler. Calm is the supporting condition for the development of happiness. And this is a kind of happiness that um, is in just being. Like a happiness of feeling the entire wave of a breath. A happiness that um, has a flavor of, of contentment. On this path, having some measure of access to subtle pleasure is really important, and we need it. <laughs> With all that I hear on the news, like oh, so much going on in the world, it's like access to a subtle pleasure that is um, from within, that's a, that's a um, force of good. <laughs> it's a real resource. I was remembering a time I was practicing at our sister center that Dara mentioned, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And, you know, we have this practice of taking what is given with regard to the rooms. And I was sitting a six-week retreat. And before they remodeled, they had these rooms in the basement. It was kind of called the old gym, and the rooms were pretty old. And they were mostly underground except for this little window. And the window was dirty, right? Because there's gardens outside and there's dust on the window. IMS is a great center. It's wonderful. But it's just how this room was. And because it was old, it, it smelled kind of moldy. And so I was practicing taking what, taking what was given. And it took me a while to feel like, okay, I can settle into this room with this bed, this tiny desk and chair that was stinky and I couldn't really see outside very much. Practicing, practicing, practicing. And then one day I... Uh, was sitting in my room and I realized, oh my gosh, the presence of sukha is here. I, there's happiness and contentment. And nothing was that different externally. I was in the same room with my same old sweatpants on. And, um, you know, it was the kind of happiness that was because I, I wasn't, craving wasn't driving me at that point. I wasn't wanting something else. The unhappiness was never about the room. It's about my, my wanting and my not liking. This is like incredible happiness, and the happiness was from not needing anything more in that moment. It, it wasn't so, so external. It was internal because I'd been practicing. And there was a power in just recognizing that. And so it's like, oh, there's moments where you recognize the presence of a sukha or a contentment, show up for it. Feel the internal dimension of that. It's not from gratification. It's from loving being in the moment. Sukha, or happiness, is a supporting condition for the development of samadhi, which I spoke about this morning. Samadhi as collectedness, unification, bringing body and mind together. 
the root of the word samadhi is the same root as the word sangha, which really means a coming together. And the key with developing this kind of um, momentum of collecting, that's why we're giving you instructions to work with the anchor. The, the key is not velocity. There can be something. Go on retreat and get really concentrated. No, you're not. You're going to get really tight. It, it's, it's consistency, not velocity. This is moment to moment to moment to moment. Like a light touch. That's how we develop samadhi. And samadhi arises from contentment and enjoyment. When the mind collects through the presence of samadhi, it becomes, some of the words used, it becomes malleable. It becomes like we can move it like clay. Becomes wieldy, and in it, in a sense, um, warms things up. So mindfulness, so sati, can do its work. The presence of collectedness is so powerful. Sometimes we recognize it in a person and we might not use that framing to describe what we're feeling, but you can feel it in a being. In a being, it's part of what gives some of our greatest leaders a kind of, um, like you, you want to be around them, you know? There's a magnetism in their energy. You want to hear what they have to say. Dara and I spent a few days together in the area before we came to teach this retreat. It was awesome. And we did a bunch of things like walk on the beach and eat well. But we watched a documentary called The Pieces I Am. Um, It's about Toni Morrison. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Artful, intimate. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen it. Really, really powerful. Um, And Toni Morrison's very clear in her writing that she's writing for black readers and that she's writing outside the white gaze. And there's something about her clarity of purpose, her um, completely cohesive deep presence. She embodies a natural kind of samadhi. There's focus, there's potency. And I appreciate her words, her words from her seat. I was saying to Josanna and Dara, what do you think about talking about Toni Morrison in this documentary tonight? And um, Josanne's like, yeah, it's like, you know, when, in, when we teach, we talk about taking the seat. You know, there's a responsibility when we sit down and we take the seat. It's like, oh, when Toni Morrison writes, she's in the seat. <laughs> she's in the seat. I said, Josanne, can I use that? They said, sure. <laughs> So so she's in the seat, and she says this, samadhi, bearing in mind that samadhi is a type of non-distractedness. She says the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language language, and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have two scientists working on the fact that it is. 
Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdom, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. You feel the power in her words? It's more than the words. It's this awake energy of, in part due to her quality of, of samadhi. And samadhi isn't just Buddhist, right? You know, moments of spontaneous concentration and collectedness. I grew up dancing. I, I trained a lot in the dance studio in North Dakota with the mayonnaise and jello salads and that white hamburger buns and all of that. But, um, you know, for years I thought, okay, I just love to dance, and I do love to dance, and so it was a really big part of my life that I love to dance. And, um, you know, looking back, I realized that what I loved is that I went through the door of the dance studio and went to the bar not the drinking bar, but the bar on the side of the room, you know, went to the bar to start, to start doing that work. And um, I didn't think about anything else. I was completely in that room. And I was completely with my body. And it was a good thing because my family life was difficult for many years during that period of time. And it was really a hugely protective activity for me and love for me, and what was protective wasn't the actual, the actual dancing was good, but what was protective was the absorption and the embodied awareness. That training was what was protective. In that, in that time and in that studio, I was whole. I wasn't all those messages, you know? So samadhi is very important, and it's a supporting condition for the development of what's called knowledge and vision of things as they are, which is a fancy way of talking about insight. The real translation is yata bhuta jnana, jnana dasana, which means how things have come to be. And you might kind of feel the difference of that lens of how things are, that view, and just kind of scoping back how things have come to be. Well, that's really important. So there's many ways we're, we're trained out of seeing how things have come to be. And then they seem very fixed and set. And it's like, oh, these are causes and conditions, how things have come to be. Insight. With samadhi, we gather. And the, and the process of insight is, is the clear seeing often often the image of a like a stick of soft butter not, not not so soft stick of butter you just take out of the fridge and if you were to take a knife like a nice silver dinner knife to cut through the butter the samadhi is like the weight of the knife and the concentration is the blade so the con- excuse me the the samadhi is the weight of the knife and the insight is the blade it's like it doesn't sink through the butter without the kind of force of the samadhi, but it also doesn't cut without the precision of the insight. So that collectedness is a supporting condition for the development of insight, and insight is a supporting condition 
for the development of disenchantment. That doesn't sound so sexy, does it? Disenchantment, which means not being enchanted. It's like a fairy tale and the main character waking up from a spell. Disenchantment. It's called nibida, which means finding out. Finding out. And this is a part of our maturational process. Maybe you've been enchanted with a relationship. Maybe you've been enchanted with the idea of retreat. Is the spell broken? <laughs> the Buddha was no longer enchanted with his, with his royal worldly life. It didn't really do it. So that's why he left the palace and started this deeper journey of seeking. He wasn't enchanted anymore. Like, what spells do you live your life under? If I just love them enough and do things right, it'll be okay, they'll choose me? Or have you ever been enchanted with a person? So wonderful, so beautiful, so wise. And then you see their humanity. And you couldn't see it before, and it's really humbling. Have you been enchanted with the myth of the American dream? You just work hard enough. You too can have the American dream that's set up for many people, especially BIPOC and queer folks and immigrants and women, to not succeed from the very beginning. And it can go both ways. We can be enchanted in a way where we love something. We can also be enchanted with our um, aversion. One time I sat a month long here, and I was over there by the window, and it was February, and I run really cold. And I didn't, I had this idea it was going to be warm in California in February, and I didn't bring enough warm clothes. I was real cold. And this woman kept opening the windows. It was her job to regulate the temperature in the hall. She'd open the windows, and I would freeze. And this went on for weeks, and I I just had my eye on her. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, before too long, it wasn't just that she was a problem opening the windows in the hall. She was a problem with how she went through the food line. Wipe her nose, pick up the salad tongs, leave her coat all over the place, plop around... (laughs) You know, I was enchanted with my story of this woman, all because I was cold, because I didn't bring a jacket. And, um, and something happened the very last night of the retreat that I was in my, my dorm room in Mata, and I heard the person next to me in the dorm crying. And I was just like, oh, gosh, somebody's really suffering. They were crying. It was loud. I thought, this person's really suffering. I had no idea who was in there. And... Um, And the next morning I walked out and it was her. It was just a sense of like my heart immediately flooded into compassion. And and it just broke the spell of my story about her that was 
my aversion hanging its hat on a very lovely person who's a friend to this day. <laughs> you know, we can be enchanted with our, our aversion as well. And enchantment, nibida, finding out. And pay attention because you will get disenchanted if the path deepens through you. Sometimes it's pretty uncomfortable. Sometimes it just feels freeing. Disenchantment is a supporting condition for the development of the for the arising of what we call dispassion. Viraga. In Pali, the kind of etymology of the word viraga, this is not a racialized etymology. It means decoloring. It's really with regard to a tapestry having the color blood out of it. And you should see what happens if you do a Google search for viraga, a poly word. What do you think came up? Viagra. Pages and pages of Viagra Googling viraga because Google doesn't know a viraga. I had to crack up on that one. But dispassion um, can sound like, oh, all of a sudden we become like a boring gray blob, but it's not that at all. It's using the word passion as a synonym for, for craving, for um, an attached emotional investment in something, real attached, real identified. And so dispassion or viraga is a process of letting go of attachment. Not getting so wrapped up so that identity's experience moves through us, but we're not, we're not, it doesn't stick in quite the same way. So really in the practice, we're getting a sense for that dimension of mind, which is dispassionate that dimension of mind, which is just here. It doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean that, that um, it's basically a process of making room for a deeper passion. It's making room for a deeper passion that has to do with love of truth, which is different than all kind of the surface level passions. Like really making room for a deeper passion Philip Slater says, despair is the only cure for illusion. Without despair, we cannot transfer our allegiance to to reality. It's a kind of mourning period for our fantasies. Some people do not survive this despair, but no major change within a person can occur without it. I've had major seasons of dispassion in my own practice. And it's like, I remember one time after a period, after a three-month retreat, I sat. You know, you think six weeks, six nights is a lot. It is. Three months is, is even more. And um, at the time, I was doing a lot of road biking. And I loved getting on my road bike. I would get on my road bike, ride for hours, come back, go to work, you know. 
And I remember coming back from that retreat and getting on my road bike, and it was like, I liked road biking, but it didn't do it for me the way it had. And I wanted that. I wanted to feel like, oh, this does it. It wasn't available. And I love eating out. I love good food. I love good meals, as you know all too well, Dara. And, um, um, you know, I'd like go out to dinner with friends. It was fine. But it wasn't like, yeah. It's just like, oh, oh, that was fine. Like this, this, this process of dispassion. Yeah, I still enjoy those things today. But it's a little different than it was. It's a little different. So we're making room for a deeper passion. We're getting repassioned, basically. Committed practitioners I know who I practice with are wonderfully passionate, alive beings. And dispassion is part of that process. Dispassion is the supporting condition for emancipation, vimuti. Emancipation is a way of speaking about deeper and deeper levels of understanding and freedom. And what I'm sharing tonight doesn't unfold sequentially. That's why I'm not saying this causes this. I'm saying this is a supportive condition for the arising of this. It's more of a spiral. It's more of a mandala than a bullet-pointed list. And the thing is, is that if you recognize and practice any one of these links that I'm talking about tonight, the whole sequence will unfold. Each one is a portal, a gateway into the rest of it. It's, it's woven together and one aspect of experience deepens the other aspects of experience. In the words of the Buddha, all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate, and through dispassion, the mind is liberated. So it's a very different take on happiness and freedom than the gratification of just getting what we want. Radical non-acquisition on this path. It's putting down. You know, putting down, and, and, and over time, there's just this deepening, deepening, deepening trust of, um, of the path of the beautiful Buddha nature of our own hearts and minds. And whatever you're practicing with here is your entry point. It doesn't look any different than exactly where you are, whatever patterning you're working with. Um, is your entry point. And we're working on a retreat like this, both with individual personal psychological patterning. We're working with patterning of systems like patriarchy. We're working with patterning that has to do with intergenerational resilience and trauma and our ancestry. We're working with so much patterning that we experience and that does and doesn't belong to us. And it starts right here. 
I'm going to leave you with a few words from Women of the Way by Sally Tisdale. And this is really something for you to take in as an image. Awakening isn't linear, it's more poetic and sacred. And this is kind of the the flavor of that. But it's like when we give instructions to be present, notice the arising and passing, notice the changing experience. This This is pointing to that. And let yourself see the imagery. Standing on the small porch of Hakujan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow. And she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that falling away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Thank you for your kind attention this evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.